you got a Bible, open to Genesis chapter 3 this morning is where we're going to start. We're doing something a little bit different here at Redeemer. If you are uh, new with us or if you are um, uh, been with us for a while, you know that we kind of spend most of our time working through books of the Bible, um, seeing how everything that God says from Genesis to Revelation has applicability to us and is relevant in our day and time. And so we normally spend time working our way with the grain of Scripture, so to speak, moving from verse to verse to verse to verse within a book. These last couple of weeks and the next couple of weeks, we're doing a little bit more across the grain of Scripture. And so we're moving pretty quickly through the biblical story to see how some of these big pieces fit together. We said the very first week in this series that unless you see the box top, sometimes it's hard to see where all the pieces of the puzzle fit. And so if you're just looking at pieces of the puzzle without seeing the bigger picture, it's hard to know how, and understand where those pieces fit and how they fit together. So the very first week as we opened this series together, we said that the Bible is a story and just like, just like every other story that's ever been written on the face of the earth. However, the Bible is different from every other story that's ever been written. All the great pieces of literature that have ever been written in the sense that while all these great pieces of literature contain truths, they have themes in them of, of hope and despair, of light and darkness. They have all these themes and they communicate truths. We said the Bible is doesn't just communicate truth. It is the true story of the world, of how the world has come into existence. And so while all these, and, and, and how it operates and how it functions, it forms for us what we would call a worldview. In other words, it's the lenses through which we process everything that we encounter or that we experience in this life. So we put on the lenses of Scripture, and it helps us interpret and translate all the things that we see happening around us and even the desires that we feel emerging within us. So the Bible forms for us a worldview, and it tells one big story across its pages. It's not just these isolated stories that you kind of pluck out from each other and find the moral of that story, and they go try to live accordingly. But the Bible is one story from Genesis to Revelation telling the story of how God has made, how men have fallen, of how God is rede has redeemed, and how one day God will renew all creation. And we find ourselves this week in the story, the big story, at kind of the climactic moment, right? If you ever watch a movie before or a television series or any a play or you read a book, every story has embedded within it a moment and kind of that climactic moment in the drama where the tension builds and then kind of gets resolved. Now, the climactic moment isn't necessarily the ending, but it's that point at which all the tension has been building to and then it gets resolved and then it, the story continues to move forward toward the ending. And that's where we find ourselves this morning in the story of the Bible. We find ourselves at the climactic moment. It's not the culmination of the story. It's not the end of the story, but it's that climactic point at which all the tension from the fall and our fallenness and sin and the brokenness that we experience in this world begins to get resolved as God takes action, as God does something. And so that's where we find ourselves this morning in the story. And we're going to start in Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to run through much of the Old Testament in big chunks this morning. And ultimately work our way into the life of Jesus himself. 
And so in Genesis chapter 3, the text will be on the screen. This text will be on the screen for you as we read it if you don't have your Bible with you. But in Genesis 3, we'll pick up in verse 14 and read down through verse 24. Genesis 3.14 says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. Because he attempted and deceived our first parents into taking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You're cursed above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So after our first parents fall, after they take of the tree that the serpent had deceived them into eating... Uh, their eyes are open. They realize they're naked. They cover themselves. God comes searching for them. Uh, he finds them, and in this dialogue with them, he begins to, to, to talk about the consequences of their actions and his, as his judgment falls upon the serpent, as his judgment falls upon the woman, as his judgment falls upon the man. And what you see in Genesis chapter 3, following the falls, you see God issuing the consequences and his judgment falling upon them, but you also see God's gracious provision for them. See, in the fall, what takes place is the image of God we talked about the very first week that God has created us in. It gets defaced and it gets distorted and it gets warped. It's not erased from us, but it's defaced in the way that it's expressed in our relationship to God and the way it's expressed in our relationship to each other. So we don't lose the capacity for relationship with God because of the fall, and we don't lose the capacity for relationship with each other because of the fall, but the way we relate to each other and the way that we relate to God is completely distorted and warped from God's good intention in the beginning. That's what you see coming in the consequences as a result of the fall. We become destructive worshipers of other things and other gods, and we become destructive relators horizontally with other people. So we bring all, we wreak all kinds of chaos and havoc in the horizontal dynamic of our relationships, and we destroy our own souls by gravitating with all of our love and loyalty, all of our allegiance and affection towards something or someone other than God. 
So the image of God isn't gone, rather it's just distorted and warped in the way that it gets expressed in us. It, our relationship with God changes, our relationships with each other change, and as we see in Genesis 3, the relationship to the world changes. God gives judgment to the serpent, to the woman, and to the man. There are consequences of the fall. But notice in Genesis 3.21, God doesn't leave them hanging out to dry. In Genesis 3-7, whenever they fall, they, the first thing, their first response, right, the, the first uh, inclination that they have whenever they realize they're naked is to what? Take the itchiest leaves they could possibly find. I don't know if you've ever picked figs before, um, but it, it's not a very pleasant experience. They take fig leaves and they cover themselves. They cover their nakedness and their shame. They're trying to cover up their own shame with insufficient coverings. And so what God does in Genesis 3.21 says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. They, had, they were trying to cover themselves in an insufficient manner and God clothes them or covers them sufficiently with the skins of animals. You know what that was a sign of? It was a sign of the fact that God wasn't done with them. He wasn't done with them. Despite their sin, despite their spiritual adultery, as we talked about last week, despite their infidelity toward this God who had lovingly created them, this God who had, given, who had blessed them and given them to eat of everything and enjoy everything, and particularly Him, that they had rebelled and sinned against Him. And so God, God in His justice could have been done with them, but He was not. Before He sends them out of the garden, He clothes them. He's not done with them. Listen, some of you are here this morning and you think that because of your sin, you think that you have gone too far. You think that you have done too much. You think that you have been too bad. You think that you have acted too treacherously. You've lived too hypocritically. And you think that God has now written you off and that he is done with you. And I'm here to tell you that God is not done with you. No matter how treacherous you have been, no matter how hypocritical your life has looked, either to yourself in the mirror or to those who are looking at you for externally, that God is not done with you. That he's able to cover you, that he's able to cleanse you. That he's going to keep pursuing you. Like Spurgeon called him the hound of heaven, that he keeps coming after his people. He's not done. He's not done. There's judgment and consequences for sin, but he also graciously provides. And not only does God provide, but we're about to hit fast forward here for a moment, all right? He not only graciously provides, but he also makes promises to his people. And throughout the pages of the Old Testament, you see these promises unfolding. And I want to show you four of them in the Old Testament. The promises that God makes to these fallen, treacherous, adulterous, unfaithful people who continue to wallow in sin time and time again. He continues to make promises to them. If you fast forward from Genesis 3, you get to Genesis 6. Things have gotten so bad by Genesis 6 that God sends a flood to destroy the earth except for one family, Noah and his, and his, his family, that he, that, and, and lots of animals, right? All, all the animals on the earth. He blows into a big boat and then they, the floodwaters rise and God destroys everything and everyone else. Save this family. 
Now, when the floodwaters begin to recede and they come out to repopulate the earth and restart life, God makes a covenant with Noah. He makes a promise to Noah. And in Genesis chapter 9, verses 8 and following, I want to read it to you. It's not on the screen, but I want to read it to you. If you don't have a Bible, just follow along. Listen. In Genesis 9, beginning in verse 8, whenever Noah comes out of the big boat, this is what God said. God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign. Here's how you know that I'm going to keep my promise. This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations I have set my bow in the cloud. And it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And all and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. God promises never to destroy the world again in that manner. And he says the sign, the seal of that promise, of that covenant, is going to be a bow that is hung in the clouds. Now when most of us think of that bow, we think of a rainbow, don't we? We think of kids' nursery pictures with a big boat and clouds and rainbows. Or I saw one this last week as a massive rainbow stretched across the horizon just after a storm. How you see all those colors put on brilliant display in the heavens. And most of us, when we think about the bow that God is referring to here, we think about that rainbow, and we are right to think that. I think that was the picture that Noah saw, that God sees and remembers his covenant that he made with Noah. But the word that he uses there to describe this bow that he's going to hang in the clouds, is there, there, there was no word for rainbow then, right? So the word that he uses is an actual, is the word that they use elsewhere for an actual bow, like a hunting bow, or a bow for war, or a bow for battle. In other words, a bow that fires real arrows. <laughs> and God says, I'm going to hang my bow, my bow of battle, my bow of war up in the clouds. And that eventually that, that language of the bow came to refer to divine judgment. In other words, whenever people were rebellious against God, then God would judge. And he would judge by whenever they fired the first shot at God, then God would judge. And his judgment were like the arrows coming off of his bow. But God says, I'm going to hang the bow in the clouds. And I want you to notice, when you look at a rainbow as it crosses the horizon after a rainstorm, which direction is the bow pointing? Is it pointing down toward the earth or up into the heart of heaven? It is pointing upward into the heart of heaven, isn't it? In other words, God says, for those who are in covenant with me and for all the earth that I make this covenant with, I will never destroy it again. I will never rain down my judgment upon it in that manner again. And the sign is this, that I will hang my bow in the clouds and that the arrows will be fired not down upon the earth, but upward into the heart of heaven. So God makes a covenant with Noah. He makes a covenant with Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, second covenant, God promises Abraham that he would have offspring. 
or that he would show him a land. He would bring him to a land that he'd never seen before, a good land, and that he would give him offspring and that through his descendants that God would bless all the peoples of the earth. And so Genesis 12, God calls Abraham to leave his home and travel to the land that he would show him. They get there. They set up shop. They eventually wind up down in Egypt because of a, of, of a great famine. So they go down looking for food. They eventually come back into the land of Canaan. And in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham still has no descendants. His wife is still barren. They still don't have a biological child. And so God, he looks up to God as if to say, God, well, you made this promise to me that you're going to bless the world through my descendants. So what is going on? I have no offspring. I have no heir. How will I know, God, that you will fulfill your promise? And in Genesis chapter 15, beginning in verse 9, God says this to Abraham. He says, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all these, cut them in half, and laid them half over against each other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And the sun was going down, and a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. So he's like in a, almost like in a comatose state. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Speaking of the time that they would spend in Egypt as a people in bondage and slavery and captivity. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the land of the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So he says to Abram, Your descendants will have all this land. You still don't have a, a child. By your wife, Sarah, but your descendants will inherit all this land. And here's how you're going to know, Abram. Here's how you're going to know that I'm going I'm to fulfill my promise. Abram, go get all of these animals, slice them in half, lay, make a path out of them that I can pass through. What God does to show the sign of his covenant, one of the, one of the signs God gives Abram of this covenant that he made with him was the fact that God enacts this ancient covenant um, ceremony. Whereas two kings, if they were entering into a treaty together, they would go through a ceremony like this where they would divide these animals in half, split the carcasses down the middle and make a path between them. Then the two kings would pass through. And as they passed through, essentially they were saying, be this done unto me should I ever fail to uphold the covenant that we're entering into together today. So in other words, may, I, may my body be ripped in half, may I be split in two should I fail to uphold the covenant that you and I are engaging in and acting and entering into today. And so what God does with Abram is he calls Abram to fall into a deep sleep. And then when a great darkness falls, there's a smoking pot and a flaming torch that both pass through. And God shows up and he passes through for both, both God and Abram. So what God was saying was this. 
Abram, be it done unto me, should I fail, should I fail to deliver on this covenant, this promise that I've made you? And Abram, be it done unto me, should you fail to keep covenant with me? So God makes a covenant with Abram. God makes a covenant with, through Moses with the people of Israel. So they spend 400 years in Egypt. And then God comes to Egypt and he, 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 he delivers his people. He's, he raises up a deliverer of Moses and he sends Moses into Egypt. And Moses and Pharaoh have all these interchanges and God sends plagues. And finally the plague of the firstborn son in which God would wipe out all the firstborn males of the land of Egypt. But all the firstborn males of the house of Israel were protected because of the Passover. They had slaughtered a lamb and painted the blood upon the doorposts of the homes. And the angel of death passed over those houses which were covered by the blood. And then Pharaoh finally breaks and sends his, let's, let's Israel leave. And as Israel's coming out, Pharaoh pursues him, them to the Red Sea. And God parts the sea and Israel passes through. And the Egyptians are crushed under the walls of water. And then Moses leads the people up to Sinai where he ascends the hill or the mountain and he receives the law. Listen, God delivers. God rescues. God redeems before he ever gives the law in Exodus chapter 20. Before the Ten Commandments ever come to his people, they'd already been rescued. In other words, God rescues his people before he shows them this is what it looks like to live in, as my people amongst all these peoples that you're going to live among. This is what it looks like to live distinctly as my people, as people who belong to me amongst all these other peoples who worship all these other gods. That's why the very first commandment is what? Thou shalt have no other god before me. In other words, you shouldn't adopt the gods of these other nations. But I should have first place in your heart. I should have your primary allegiance, your deepest affection, your greatest love, and your most vigilant loyalty should belong to me and me alone. And then he gives them the other commandments throughout the, throughout the Ten Commandments and the rest of the book of Exodus and the book of Leviticus has a lot of ceremonial law and moral law encapsulated in there and national law as Israel as a nation state of how they are to conduct themselves. But the law exists not, not to put people right with God, but to show people who have been put right with God because God has delivered them how they should live in relationship to God. But the law also shows them that they can't do it. That they're incapable of living the way that God has commanded them to live. Why else would then God institute a sacrificial system in the ceremonial law to bring offerings and to bring sacrifices? So you get to the book of Leviticus and you find the Day of Atonement where there were two goats that were brought into the temple to the high priest and upon one he would confess the sins of the people as a scapegoat and he would send that goat out into the wilderness never to come back. In other words, they were, he was removing the sins of the people from, from, from the camp or from the city. Removing their shame and removing their guilt that fell upon that goat that wandered off into the wilderness and took their guilt and their shame away. But there was another lamb that was slain and his blood was taken into the Ark of the Covenant which sat behind the curtain in the Holy of Holies and the blood was sprinkled upon the mercy seat that sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant by which the wrath and the just anger of God against the sin of the people was turned aside. So the sacrificial system in which there was blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Now blood wasn't magical. It wasn't like you just, you just 
pour a little blood on something and all of a sudden sins are forgiven. Here's what it was. In Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11, we find these words. It says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And what that means is this. That, that, that the blood stood for the life of the, of the animal or for the individual. And so what was happening is whenever they were to cut the throat of that lamb and let it bleed out, what was pouring out of it was its life. If you bleed out, you die. <laughs> Do you know that? If you bleed out, you die. You're, the life is in the blood. And so what, what was going on in the sacrificial system wasn't a magical sprinkling of blood. It was the exchange of one life for another. The exchange of life for life. So God institutes the sacrificial system because his people could not keep the law. As Paul says later in Galatians, that the law would function not to make us right with God, but, be a, but to be a tutor for us. It was to teach us something. That's what a tutor does. It comes along and instructs. What did it instruct us in? What it looks like to live in relationship with God and how we can't do it. <laughs> and how we need him. It was a tutor, it says, teaching us until Christ came, Paul says in Galatians. So God makes a covenant with Moses. God makes a covenant with David. Fast forward, 2 Samuel chapter 7. God makes a covenant with David. And what he says to David, he says, David, right? David was the man after God's own heart. Even though he, had, even though he sinned egregiously, he was the man after God's own heart. That's how he was known. He makes a covenant with David to say to David, listen, in 2 Samuel 7, there's always going to be one of your descendants, one of your offspring, one of your heir who's going to rule over my people. And not just temporally here in this world, but eternally forever. There will be a descendant of David on the throne of God's people, ruling and reigning over them for all the ages to come. He makes that promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He makes a covenant with him. And not only do you see that covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that God makes with David, but you also see God give Daniel a vision. In Daniel chapter 7, in verses 13 and 14, Daniel's having these visions of all these things that are, that are transpiring in the heavens and will transpire on the earth. And in Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 13, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold... With the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Daniel has this vision. God gives a covenant to David. Daniel sees this vision in the heavens of the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and one like a son of man who approaches him, and God the Father hands over to the one who is like a son of man, like one of us, hands over to him authority and power and dominion that shall be forever and ever and ever, that there will never be an end to his kingdom, Kingdom, that his rule shall never pass away. So in the Old Testament, God is making promise after promise after promise. And the prophets are seeing these visions and the prophets are prophesying these truths about what will one day come to pass. And then you have a fifth covenant. It's the new covenant. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 and following, God says through Jeremiah to his people, listen, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. 
Not like the covenant that I had made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband. There's that infidelity and adultery again. Declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declared the Lord. And here it is. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their people and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. So God promises through Jeremiah there's a day coming in the future in which the new covenant would be enacted in which God would take the law that was written on stone tablets given to Moses and he would write it on his people's hearts. Or as he says in Ezekiel that he would take out the heart of stone that his people had and replace it with a heart of flesh, one that loved God and desired to do his will. And so Jeremiah predicts this coming in Jesus in Luke chapter 22, verse 20. He takes the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. <laughs> so Jesus says what Jeremiah prophesied, I am enacting right now. The time in which the law of God would come to be impressed upon the hearts of his people is here. It is now. So God makes promise after promise after promise after promise to a rebellious and hard-hearted and resistant and adulterous and infidel unfaithful. That's, I couldn't make up that whatever word I was trying and, and unfaithful people time after time after time in the Old Testament he continues to enact covenants with his people and then you get to the new covenant and what you see is what God does is he sends a person the very person of his son and one of the things this shows us listen those, those are, that's all, it's all leading up to this it shows us that the remedy for sin is not a policy, but a person. The remedy for sin is not a policy or a procedure or, or certain practices, but the remedy for sin is a person. See, if the root of sin is inordinate desires and adulterous desires, if sin is before it is an action that you commit with your hands, if it is an affection of the heart, then the remedy for sin cannot be external policies that get laid on top of your life, but it must be a person. It must be a person. And so God sends his own son and he sends him, he sends him, for the sake of our discussion this morning, he sends them as two things. More than that, but two things. He sends them as our example, and he sends them as our substitute. As our example and our substitute. Listen, he sends them, first of all, think of it this way. He sends them as our example. He sends them as the example of what it looks like to live in relationship to God in harmony and holiness and in relationship to other people, in love and graciousness and justice and truth. He sends them as our example. I don't know if you've ever tried to bake something or put, put together a recipe 
right? If you've ever tried to cook something or if you've ever tried to fix something that is broken or has fallen apart or isn't working like it should, there's several ways that you can go about doing that, isn't there? You can, go, you can get on www.whatever and go search for a list of instructions that's going to give you bullet points of step one and step two and step three and step four and step five. And you can work your way through that list of instructions to bake that casserole or to repair that whatever it is that's been, been broken down isn't functioning properly. You can try and take that list of instructions and, 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 and go about in, in engaging to bake that dish or fix that engine. But what, what's even better than a list of instructions on a website somewhere is a, is, is a picture. It's a picture of the ingredients being added or a picture of the place where the breakdown is taking place. And what's even better than a picture is a video, right? Why do you think YouTube is so popular, right? You go to, go to YouTube.com and you can find a video of how to fix or bake just about anything, okay? How to repair anything, and so you can watch a video. You can watch somebody go step by step, unplug this wire, replace this screw, add this sugar at this point, and mix it together for this long. You can watch all of that unfold. You can see it video, face to face. And what's even better than a video is to have a master mechanic or chef right next to you, engaged in the process with you. And you see, what God has done what God has done is not just, see many of us, all of our lives, we've seen the Bible as a policy manual for life. But the Bible is the story of a person who has come as the remedy and solution for sin. The Bible is not just a policy manual for your life to give you certain practices to do and certain practices not to do. The Bible is a story of God's redeeming work that he's created, that we have fallen and God has chased us down by sending a person so that we not only would he tell us what to do, but he would show us how it's done. He would show us how it's done. Listen, what if, what if, what if everyone was as loving and gracious and truthful and just and righteous as they see Jesus being on the pages of Scripture? What if everyone loved the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, with all their strength, with every faculty that they possess and loved their neighbor as themselves in the way they see Jesus loving God and loving others? What if everyone in the world was conformed to his image that you see unfolding for you in the pages of the Gospels and the character that you see unfolding in the pages of the epistles and the predictions that you see pointing to him on the pages of the Old Testament? What if everyone in the world was that way? I think it might be a little better a little better, at least. That's, that's a little bit of sarcasm, by the way, if you want to pick up on that. So he came not only to tell us what to do, but to show us how it's done. But here's the deal. If you only look to Jesus as your example, he will crush you. <laughs> he will crush you. And here's why. Have you ever seen his example? 
is absolutely perfect without sin. Infinitely holy. Always truthful. No matter what the consequences are. Always moving toward people in love. Generous, gracious, compassionate. And compassionate that knows no bounds. If you just see Jesus as your example and you go, that dude, right? That dude is who you need to be like. Go be like him. If you just see him as an example, then you will go out from here today and you will try and be like Jesus and you will keep falling flat on your face and you will have no hope because you realize when you wake up tomorrow that you can never be like him. If you only see him as your example, it will crush you. But if you see that he was crushed as your substitute, it will change you. It will change you. It will begin to change you from the inside out. When you see that he came to live a holy and sinless life because you could not, it will begin to change you. It will begin to melt your defenses. It will begin to change the way that you interact with other people. It will begin to change the direction of the love and loyalties of your heart and the things that you are worshiping. You begin to worship God as opposed to other people. You begin to worship God and the pleasure that you find in him as opposed to sensual pleasures that you find on this earth. You'll begin to worship God as the ultimate source of all your satisfaction and not be satisfied anymore by just the possessions that you could achieve and acquire and attain for yourself. Here, those things wouldn't be at the center of your heart any longer. and They would begin to lose their power because you would be replacing those loves with a greater love. A deeper love. If he's only your example, he will crush you. But if he's your substitute, he will change you. This is why God sends a person and not a policy manual. See, policies can regulate and restrain your behavior for so long, right? You've probably found that to be true. Some of you may have been in churches where everything was preached in here like a policy manual and no one was ever really pointing you consistently to Jesus except maybe once a quarter when they did an evangelistic push. And you begin to feel the weight. I can't live that way. Here's the good news. God didn't just send a policy manual. He sent a person. And policy manuals restrain our behaviors. But people, people change us, don't they? Have you found it to be true in your life? That external procedures don't change internal dynamics, but people change you. That's why those of you who have been married any time at all, you recognize today when you look in the mirror, I'm not the same person that I was when I got married because my spouse has changed me. The relationship that we're in with that person, it has changed me. Kids will change when the kids come along. You change. (laughs) Your priorities shift. They're not the same anymore because there's another person in your life and that begins to change you. Kids change parents. Parents, over the course of time, by God's grace and a little bit of (laughs) counseling, change, redirect the lives of their kids. A good friendship that has lasted year after year after year, ultimately has an effect on you, who you are. People change us, don't they? And listen, all of those, all of those are but shadows of the true substance. 
All of those are but echoes of the real song. All of those are but glimpses of the greatest person. The greatest person. See, God knew he couldn't just send a policy manual, so he sent a person as the remedy for sin. Because the love of God shown in the person of Jesus Christ is the only thing that has the power to begin to change and slowly chisel away at the heart of infidelity and to secure your love and affection for God. So everything from Genesis to Malachi is ultimately pointing to him, to this climactic point in the story. That's why Jesus says in Luke 24, with his disciples on the road to Emmaus, he points back to everything written back there in the law, in the Psalms, in the prophets. And that was Jesus' way of saying, everything in the Old Testament is pointing to me. It's pointing to me. That he is the high priest who offers the sacrifice. And as the author of Hebrews says, he is the sacrifice that is offered. That Jesus is indeed, he is indeed the true and better. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative in which every story, every character points beyond itself to one who is greater. The story of Adam and Eve is not just about the first man and woman. There is a true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is ascribed to us. There is a true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. There is a true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void to create a new people of God. There is a true and better Isaac the son of laughter, of grace, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. There is a true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. There is a true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. There is a true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. There is a true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. There is a true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer, who then intercedes for and saves his foolish friends. There is a true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. There is a true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. There is a true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. 
There is a true and better Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative that points to one person, Jesus. The Son of Man, he's not downplaying or concealing his divinity. Rather, quite the contrary, is revealing his true identity, the King of Israel and the ruler of the nations, whose dominion shall never pass away and whose kingdom shall never be destroyed. He's the fulfillment of God's covenant with David. He's the only person who was ever justified by works of the law and whose life was given as an exchange for ours. He fulfills all the Mosaic covenant and becomes the lamb that was exchanged for us. He's the son, of, the son of God himself would be beaten and have the flesh of his body ripped from him and pierced because of the failure of his people to keep covenant. He's the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham saying, be it done unto me, Abraham, should my people fail to keep covenant with me, may I be ripped in two. And he's the fulfillment of God's promise to Noah. The judgment of God, the arrow from God's bow would pierce the very heart of his son so that for all who are in covenant with God, We know him as a good, good, loving father. This is the climactic point in the story. When Jesus gathers with his, with his disciples and he takes the bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body broken for you, ripped for you, arrows piercing, the arrow of God's judgment piercing me for you. And this is the new covenant enacted in my blood. That you might know forgiveness and cleansing from the person who would change us. Would you pray with me? Father, we come today with grateful hearts, overflowing, overflowing with, with a sense of awe and majesty for who you are and what you have done. Father, we cannot fathom a love that would continue to pour itself out for those who would continue to take so much. But that's the story that you keep chasing and pursuing and that your son is the fulfillment of all of those promises that you've made and all of those covenants that you've enacted. That he is the son of man that he was ripped limb from limb, that his body was pierced by the arrow of your judgment, that he is the king who will never, who will, who, whose, whose rule and reign will never pass away, that he is the one who has fulfilled the law. So as we look at the Bible, Father, would you help us to see that big story unfolding on its pages? And Father, I pray if there's someone in this room this morning whose hearts have never been awakened to that truth and that reality, I pray. I pray that they would stop trying to find the remedy and the solution for sin in their lives through practices, procedures, and policies, but they would look to the person of your son.
and they'd be captivated with a God who loves us so much that he would give his one and only son so that we might not perish but have everlasting life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.